Lord, will only a few people be saved? We don't know who asked this question, or more importantly, why. But it's not unlike the kinds of questions that televangelists and street preachers often ask. Are you saved? The question leaves no room for ambiguity or nuance. Either you're saved or you're not. The Catholic answer to the question begins with, yes, uh, we were initiated into salvation the day we were baptized. But for a Catholic, salvation is not a past event. Salvation is what Christ is doing in and for us over the course of our whole life, doing it right now. St. Paul says in Second Philippians, we work out our salvation in fear and trembling. He could have said, we work out our salvation in complete confidence that we'll all make it through the pearly gates no matter what. What he wrote, fear and trembling, because he knew that it's always possible to turn away from God's offer of salvation, though God does not turn away from us. One of the rewards of reading Dante's Divine Comedy is that you quickly learn that no one goes to hell by accident. You have to single-mindedly choose it as your final travel destination. And that means you have to live as though you were there already. The Church has a long list of saints, men and women of proven holiness. We have no corresponding list of the damned because God's love is infinitely greater than our ability to comprehend it, much less our ability to predict who makes it and who doesn't. God still loves the souls in hell, but they are incapable of loving back, and this may be their greatest torment. This is the theological background out of which we should reflect on the question asked of Christ in today's gospel, are they few in number who are to be saved? The question gets answered every Sunday when we sing the creed and come to the words, for us men and for our salvation he came down from heaven and became man. Packed within this single declarative sentence lies a complex chain of theological reflection that defines Catholic faith. Is Christ human or divine? The answer is crucial because the person of Christ has everything to do with the work of Christ. If the Church got it wrong understanding who Christ was, St. Athanasius said, then the Church would get it wrong also on the work of Christ. His work is our salvation and deification. It took three ecumenical councils to carefully work out the language of salvation and the Christological and Trinitarian doctrines that lie behind it. The debates were often tumultuous because the Council Fathers understood that the outcome meant how you answered the question about who is to be saved and how, with or without our bodies, within or without of the world, now or at the end of time, alone or as members of a community. Another way of asking the questions, what exactly does salvation look like? The first possibility looks like a heavenly theme park where disembodied spirits float on clouds playing harps that never need to, never need to be tuned. The other possibility looks suspiciously like Karl Marx's vision of an earthly and classless political utopia. 
I am not a rocket scientist, and I don't need to be one to connect the dots to the radically different and ultimately alien theologies that lie on either end of those two considerations. If salvation were to be found in an otherworldly, disembodied, never-never land, the divine Logos would not have had to become a human being. Christianity, if it existed at all, would be an esoteric, do-it-yourself, Gnostic sect, salvation by secret password. Conversely, if salvation is conceived as an earthly paradise a la Marx and Lenin, we wouldn't need Jesus of Nazareth. We would have salvation by government. And for those who find this option attractive, I feel obliged to mention Ronald Reagan's famous line that the ten most frightening words in the English language are, we're from the government and we're here to help you. Happily, these are not the only two options available. When the Gospels of the Church, uh, when the Gospels or the Church Fathers talk about salvation, they describe it as being saved both from and for, saved from sin and saved for intimacy with God, saved from death and saved for eternal life, saved from hate and saved for love, saved from isolation and saved for community. Every single word in that brief litany is personally familiar to us because we all know the opposite ends of those extremes. This is not esoteric language, but neither is it the enthusiastic language of an evangelistic tent revival. It is the language of repentance, conversion, and reconciliation anchored in the experience of a deep and fundamental change of mind and heart. It is the language of sacramental encounter with the true and living God within the community of the Church. We are saved only by the power of God acting in the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is what Luke is telling us Sunday after Sunday as we make our way through his gospel. This is what we encounter every time we celebrate the Eucharist, that God has chosen to act in our world of space and time for the sake of human beings and out of love for his creation. It's actually the message of the first reading from Isaiah. We can exclude ourselves by our refusal to accept this salvation, and surely there are some who do this. But when we accept it, in the manner and company of God's own choosing, then, and only then, are we walking through the narrow door.